Deep Macro is starting a podcast. It's focused on data science, technology, and Asia. We want to bring you people from our network who might be from outside of finance, but are relevant to markets. I'm Mara Pape, Head of Macro Research, and I'm here with Jeff Young, CEO of Deep Macro. And for our first episode, we're excited to be speaking with Arne Hoffman, the CEO of SafeGraph. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company working to understand the physical world and how people interact with it. I'm sure many of you have seen SafeGraph's data in the media. It's been used during COVID to answer questions like whether it's safer to go to a coffee shop or to go to the gym. It's also been used by the Dallas Fed. Aaron is the former CEO and founder of LiveRamp and has been on the board of BrightRoll. He's the founder of Dialogue Retreat and an investor in over 80 active technology companies. Oren's going to kick off the conversation with a short presentation, and we will follow up with questions. So over to you, Oren. Oh, awesome. One thing might be worth diving into is um, how the world's top economists are using data about physical places. So if you go to Google Scholar and you type in the word safe graph, you'll see over 400 peer-reviewed academic papers written in the last nine months. And, and since COVID, there's been this real accelerated need for data about physical places. And you have economists from Stanford and Harvard, Federal Reserve, Goldman Sachs, and many, many others like writing papers daily using the SafeGraph data and many, many other data sets about the physical world. And, and that's because pre-COVID, like the death rate of a place was roughly 1% a month, which, which is actually really, really high, but most people never realized it was so high because it wasn't really in the zeitgeist. Post-COVID, the death rate of a place is over 3% a month, and the place's churn is really in, on everyone's mind And there's because there's thousands of news articles about it. So data about physical places is super topical and, and also important. Another interesting development is the ability to easily join disparate data sets together. Uh, SafeGraph is one of the core contributors to PlaceKey, and PlaceKey is this kind of free and open common ID for physical places. And it's it essentially um, like now like entity resolution on physical places is basically solved like for free. So that opens up the world's top economists to working with many, many different data sets because PlaceKey is a join key that can easily allow, easily allows you to join all these data sets together. Whereas just a few months ago, most academics were basically confined to working with just one data set. Interesting. Um, that 1% number was a little bit uh, uh, shocking to me. Uh, what do you mean by a place? Uh, if you could just elaborate on that, sorry. Yeah, I mean, a place could be really anything with a physical address where like suite 904 is different than suite 504. So it could be an apartment or an office or a local coffee shop or a warehouse or a park or anything you can define in kind of a core physical space. Okay. How far along do you think, you know, as compared to other industries, how far along is finance and specifically people you talk to uh, in markets in the journey of using data productively? Well, I, I think it's still relatively new. And, you know, if you think of like, even from hedge funds, uh, just a few years ago, there was really only 10 funds that were really using alternative data. Today, it's still basically under 100 that are actually really using alternative data, but there's probably another 700 or so which are making the effort to use that type of data. And you're seeing the same kind of uh, change, this kind of order of magnitude change in every industry, whether it be in private equity or whether it actually be in academia or whether it be in retail or healthcare, or you just go down the list. 
I mean, how are you, I guess some, some places are using it more productively than others. What, what do you think are some of the aspects that makes a company more likely to be able to use the data productively? Because there, there's a lot of data out there and it's not all great and it's hard to integrate. Um, what, what are the keys to success for companies sort of thinking about getting into this more? So you th if you think of it like over the last 15 years, there's been this big like revolution in data science. And the first thing you should be doing if you're kind of along that data science curve, the very, the very first thing you should be doing is working with your own internal data. So let's say you're McDonald's or something like that. Like the, it doesn't make sense to be bringing in external data. You have all of this rich internal data and you should be working on that. And there's some sort of curve that you start to move along on your kind of data science perspective. And you're buying all these different tools. Maybe you're buying Snowflake or, or Databricks or all these other tools to help you on that journey. At some point, and you know, and maybe as you get further down the curve, you're hitting an asymptote where you're really not getting very much at all out of your internal data anymore. But well before you hit that asymptote, it, it makes sense to start to bring in external data because even a mighty company like McDonald's only knows about 0.01% of the world. And so as you start to bring in external data, you can really uplift your general knowledge about what's going on. What, what, and depending on whatever you're looking for doing, maybe you're trying to decide how do I hire people or where do I put my new stores or trying to optimize prices or there could be um, thousands of different questions that you may have where your own data is very, very important for that decision. But by bringing in external data, you can make a much more optimal decision. Um, or I wanted to maybe shift a little bit toward kind of like the recovery that we're seeing here and now or not. Um, uh, I think your data has been really interesting in terms of uh, seeing how people are uh, first off during the lockdowns, uh, the recovery, uh, how behavior changed during the second wave or the third wave or, or whatever wave we're on. Um, what are the lessons learned from that? And in particular, you know, where do you see us right now? Uh, this is what we spend a lot of time on. Basically, everybody in the world is spending a lot of time on. Uh, if you could just comment a, a few uh, a few minutes on that, that'd be great. Uh, honestly, I don't think I have like any smart insights on that. I mean. You know, if you think of like migration or something like, there's no doubt there's a there's a migration trend away from places like New York and San Francisco. I, but I think the big question is like, what's the magnitude and how long will that trend continue? And and I I don't think we have good enough data to know. You can certainly make predictions, but I think very very smart people can predict many different things with the data that's available. Okay, right. Um, last year when um, uh, uh, you know, when the recovery started, um, and you know, we've been working with your data or looking at your data quite quite carefully. Um, I mean, it really did seem, you know, uh, middle of April, uh, kind of the sort of Easter weekend, uh, seemed to be, uh, if you will, the very trough or or the, the peak of people staying at home, uh, the very trough of people going out, and then it really kind of started to loosen up um, after that. Was is that is that basically correct? Um, and you know, is there any um, is there anything else that we can learn about just the pace of recovery uh, from um, these data as you see it right now? Yeah, well, one of the great things about the data is um, it's very localized and every single place. So you have all of these like experiments happening both by country, but even like within countries. So in the US within states or even within cities within states, you see extremely different patterns. Some of that is due to, um, you know, maybe the culture of those places. Some of it might be due to policy decisions made by the policymakers in those particular places. 
Um, there may be other types of things, you know, rural versus urban. It's, so there could be all these, but, but we have all these great experiments which have happened. There's been a ton of academic papers which are trying to tease some of these things out. One of the problems with some of the academic papers is I think sometimes they come to the conclusion that like their political side is best. Um, and it may have been like a pre-conclusion that they may have already come to or something, you know, beforehand. But there's many of them that, that, that are that are quite good. Um, and and I, I think we're going to be studying this for for the next few decades, just like we, you know, we studied things like the Depression or other types of decision making. The difference between this and like the Depression is we have so many different experiments. So we can start to tease out, OK, why did this area of Florida do better than this area of California? Um, and, and we can start to really start to learn about different types of decisions that were made. Uh, and there were there's probably hundreds of variables that went into almost every single one of these things to tease it out. But the good news is, is like for at least for academics, is we're talking about full employment for the next few decades on this on this one question. For, for people who might be a little less familiar with your data set, I mean, just thinking about what you're saying, people moving away from cities. I'm I'm still sitting in Brooklyn, but my neighborhood has pretty much emptied out and people are somewhere else. How would you actually see that in your data? I mean, what are you actually capturing? Yeah, so you can see like, where do people live? Where do people, um, you know, what, what types of places do people go to? Um, how, uh, what places are popular, et cetera. And, and that place could be a park or could be a, uh, a, a warehouse or it could be a coffee shop or you know any other place that that's out there or even like a census block group or something like that so you can start to see that the population of a particular census block group has gone down over time population of another census block group has gone up sometimes that migration is temporary so you can see you know maybe there's a bunch of people in brooklyn who you know went to upstate new york for a long time and it you know could be a temporary thing but but many of these temporary things uh can be permanent as well Okay, that's helpful. One experiment, you know, that I think is uh, maybe it's kind of happening live now. Uh, vaccinations have started. Um, some uh, states are well ahead of others. Some countries are well ahead of others. Do you have any sense? And this would be super early, uh, obviously. Um, at what point after uh, vaccination begins uh, do we get? Do we begin to see any kind of real behavioral changes? Is there enough? Uh, out there yet? Um, is that an experiment that you've kind of thought you, you've started to look at? Yeah, I, I don't know that there's enough out there per se, because and also these things are not just about the vaccinations, but they're also about what policymakers and cultural. So, um, you know, we have extreme versions like Israel right now, which are very, very far along on the vaccination curve, and maybe some other places like Dubai and UAE, which are very far along on the vaccination curve, we have extreme on the other side, you know, some of these, uh, especially some of these European countries that you would expect to be further along or not. Um, far along, but then you still have like both the political side as well. So, you know, they, they still may say you still have to work from home or, um, and then you may have um, different cultural norms as well, which are, you know, very, so I think you have to tease out all of these different types of things. And this is again, why I think we'll see full employment for, for academics for a really long time, because I don't, I think you can come to many, many different conclusions looking at the exact same data. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, I'm going to follow up and I think more has a few questions, but I did that kind of raise one thing that I know that um, uh, live ramp, etc. You, um, um, you have a background in advertising, uh, or at least, you know, that's kind of one of the uh, uh, domains that you've been in. And um, I, when I think about the recovery, uh, a lot of it is very psychological. Um, when do people feel safe? 
Um, I just had the experience today. Uh, I'm in my office now. Uh, a colleague who I hadn't seen in 11 months came in and, and we almost hugged each other. We were no one else. It was so nice to see somebody. And we started thinking, you know, maybe we're going to get more normal. It's very psychological. And, you know, your, your whole background, I mean, advertising is very psychological as well. I mean, what can you tell from these things, uh, lat long timestamps uh, in cell phones about consumer psychology or, I mean, is that ultimately what we're really trying to do here? Well, it's, it's a good question. And I, I do think there are these like two sides to advertising. There's the psychological side and, and you have these like experts like Rory Sutherland who have been kind of like teasing some of these things out for years. Um, but you also have like the very much of like the data science side of it. And that, that's probably more my background is more the data science side. So I, I always admire the folks on the psychology side and, um, you know, the true, the, some of those are really the true marketing geniuses. But I don't know that I have like enough smart things to say about about it. But but certainly the psychology is incredibly important, you know, for for everything, for the economy, for all of these different types of things. Um, and you know, humans are very you know we're memetic copying machines, so we tend to copy what other people do, what other people around us do, what our family members do, etc. Um, and these things like these memes can spread really really fast, and it could be a pernicious meme, which could be bad for society, but it also could be a like, collective good meme as well which could be something really good for society. Um, and one of the things that's happening because of technology is these memes are spreading much, much faster than they ever have before. So both the good ones and the bad ones are, are and, and so one of the questions is how do like the forces of good get together and spread the things that are gonna be good for good rather than um, either kind of other types of actors which might be spreading some of these bad things. And sometimes they're spreading pernicious things, not even willingly, um, but they may be doing it in a kind of a carefree way. Um, I'm going to ask another, a more, I know that Maura has a few, but I'm going to ask one that's a little bit dull, but very important for uh, a lot of people in finance. And that is related to things like using data. Um, uh, do you think that the industry um, has become a little bit more standard uh, in terms of uh, coming up with uh, acceptable use cases? Um, we've, you know, we, we come across this a lot in our own work uh, where um, privacy issues um, um, and the like. Uh, and everybody seems to want to have a different language. Um, is this something that you think, has, has there been some convergence of standards uh, as the use uh, has been, uh, has increased? Um, or is it still really kind of one by one, every firm has different standards uh, and it all has to be negotiated separately? Well, if we take the privacy side out of it, privacy is really only about when you're dealing with data about people. If you're dealing with data about any other thing other than people, you don't have privacy. No one has privacy around, you know, how many employees does Starbucks have or something like that, or how many stores does Starbucks have, or what was the Starbucks revenue three quarters ago, or, you know, this, these are not, these are kind of like facts um, type of thing where, you know, there's no kind of like core privacy around the, those types of things. Uh, and most data has not, so most data is not about people. Um, people is an important piece of it but most data is not about people. So one of the things is that, that um, people are, so data is becoming easier and easier to use. 
it used to be that you needed an incredibly amazing engineering team to be able to take in a bunch of data and actually get value out of those data sets. And so there were actually a very small number of buyers who could buy that type of data. But today, um, you, uh, you maybe just need a, a decent engineering team or an okay engineering team, plus a tool like Snowflake or Databricks or something like that makes you as dangerous as a great engineer was maybe five years ago. So just the number of organizations that can buy data today is growing dramatically. The other thing that's happening is just, just look at the, the rise of the titled data scientist. Um, just five years ago, very few companies had 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 um, like a VP of data science or certainly not an SVP of data science. Today, almost everybody in the Fortune 500 has like an SVP and they have hundreds of data scientists that can actually really work on these like really, really big problems. So we're, we're also seeing a more appreciation um, that data can be be there. And, you know, in the last 15 years, if you just want to have one thesis of how to make money, the thesis would be, I want to invest in software companies that sell to data scientists. Um, that would have done incredibly well. If you just invest in every single software company you could find that was selling to data scientists, um, that would have been probably the, the almost the best investment thesis you, you could have had. Um, uh, uh, and and these, because of that, data scientists are just so much more powerful today than they ever have before. One thing that they don't always have access to is external data. Um, and so uh, it is ne it, there's never been a better time to be a company that sells data to data scientists. Conversely, it's actually super hard to get funding if you're a data company because venture capitalists just don't really have the understanding or the appreciation of data. So if you happen to be one of those few data companies that do get funding, you're going to really thrive because you you have you'll have much less competition than the kind of the comparable SaaS company. In terms of you know what you're doing as a data company to clean and to make this data usable for a bunch of different users, that seems like a huge challenge. I mean, I can't even imagine how much data is to get cell phone pings from everyone in a different Starbucks all over the place. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges on that side, and and how do you sort of put the data into a format that's relevant for end users? So today, SafeGraph gets data from roughly 20,000 sources. And, you know, we all crawl the city of San Francisco or crawl the McDonald's website or, you know, get lots of other types of data like there. And, we, and our goal is to put that data together. Um, that's up from just 2,000 sources a year ago. We started with 200 sources. At the end of this year, we'll probably be 200,000 sources. At the end of next year, we'll be over 2 million sources. So kind of growing an order magnitude each year of number of sources that are out there, including international sources. Um, and... As you can imagine, yes, um, that same McDonald's might be in 30 of those 20,000, that same McDonald's of 555 Main Street might be in 30 of those 20,000 sources. And you want to merge all 30 out of 30 together, not 25 out of 30 and not 35 out of 30. We happen to use PlaceKey, which is this kind of open and free uh, system to uh, do that entity resolution that anyone can use, which is great. Um, and it's very, very powerful. So it allows those merges to happen. And then once you do the merges, you, you really, if, if you're selling a data scientist, you're selling veracity, you're selling these core facts. So you really want to make sure that that data is true. And you're going to, you're going to get conflicting data. One will say the McDonald's opens at 7am and the other one will say the McDonald's opens at 8am, for instance, right? And you have to come up with some sort of system to uh, disambiguate all the different facts and, and make a prediction as to what the right one is. And we do all those, all those different types of things. And then ideally you want some sort of feedback loop 
from people, users, customers, you can have other types of folks that you can hire that check your facts and give you a sense of how often you're right, when you're wrong, and then you can you can update your algorithms based on how that how that is happening. But you your your core, if you're a data company, really, I think most data companies sometimes forget this. You're just selling facts. That is it. That is a hundred percent of thing. That if 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 we think of what do our clients judge on, they judge us whether we're true or not, right? We say we 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 claim this McDonald's opens at seven a.m. Is that true? Um, and maybe it was true three months ago, but it's no longer true today. And so you you constantly have to be updating everything that you do because you're just you're selling the past. You're not necessarily your your clients are trying to figure out the future, but you're really trying to predict the past as a data company. Right. Right. Well, that's that's really interesting. I think uh, if we have just a few more minutes, we have one one last question for you. Um, I've heard that you're very good at getting answers from from emails, which is what some of us struggle with quite a bit, especially when cold emailing. Um, what are the rest of us doing wrong? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think the most important thing when you cold email someone is making sure that they want to receive your email. Um, and so you want to send them an email that they're going to actually enjoy and, and, um, and, and, and get. So first of all, they do, you do have to make sure the email is readable. So like really thinking about, okay, what the subject line should be, how do I make it short? Um, is there some sort of, you, you, you might need to have some social proof, uh, that makes sense that they have to read your, you know, some reason that you're sending an email. Of course, like if you're Bill Gates and you send me an email, it's much, much more likely I'm going to read it because I know who Bill Gates is. If you're Bob, you know, if you're, um, you know, Bob Smith or something, I've never heard of you, then you need to have some, you might want to have some additional social proof on it. Um, but the core thing is put yourself in that, just, just like anything you're doing in life, put yourself in the other person's shoes and make sure this is something that's truly a benefit to them rather than like you're trying to sell them widgets that they don't really need. Wow. I'll, I'll remember that the next time I email my mother. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, that was uh, really interesting and, and we, we learned a lot. Thank you, Maura. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Lauren. Take care. Bye-bye.